0: Jerry bids farewell as he presses the defibrillators to his temples. A blast of electricity emits from them, surging directly into the man's brain. Within an instant, Jerry's mind goes blank.
1: to the Unreal Bros. Welcome to our podcast. I'm your host, L.A., and this is your other
0: host. I'm Jay Davis. You can follow me on Twitter at
1: jhenrydavis. You can follow me on Twitter because I use better websites. Anyway, today, what we are going to be talking about is a mainstay of classic transgressive internet fiction. That's right. We're talking about F. Gardner but not just any book by F. Gardner, one of his most famous and beloved. And since I think we've all about read half of Call of the Crocodile just by the ads alone, we're gonna be talking about Jigoku today.
0: All right, so Jigoku is notable for me because F. Gardner is a very sort of famous fan of Pokemon and Pokemon trading card games. He Brings up the 1999 season of the show, just about every chance he gets. And Jigoku is edgy Pokemon fan fiction. Pokemon, but all the creatures are Turned inside out, they're drooling blood, they spew
1: acidic vomit. Yeah, you know, I, I think with, with Jigoku, yeah, it, it really did read to me like edgy fanfiction. Especially the whole reincarnation and afterlife aspect, because, uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't somehow not read this book, the main character dies, like in the third chapter. <laughs> he blasts himself with a defibrillator. Talk about a shock to the system, am I right? But no, I, I think firstly, Gardner probably made that pun, and second, yeah, it's, it's edgy Pokemon fan fiction. It's the sort of shit I'd write when I was an edgy teenager. I mean, right. granted, I wrote edgy MLP fan fiction instead, but you know, if I hadn't seen MLP and I was better at the Pokemon trading card game, I would write Jigoku, or at least
2: a crap version of Jigoku, because this book's actually pretty good. It, it is surprisingly... readable. For
0: what, I mean, just on the face, for what you'd expect from Pokemon Fenton, very entertaining.
1: Yeah. You're still going to have to grapple with the signature hit-and-miss Gardner style of punctuation, which I can only describe as uh, creative. In the same way a guy running a red light is creative. (laughs) But, honestly, I think it adds to the effect. This is a book produced by the internet. No other community or culture could have produced this book. Could the French realists have produced this book? No. Russians? No. Arabs? No. 4chan? Yes. So I think that combined with the subject matter, edgy Pokemon fan fiction, this feels like you're reading fan fiction. Good fan fiction, granted, the stuff that would get to the front page of whatever site you read your fan fiction on, sure. But this is essentially original character, do not steal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. um... On top of the Gardner punctuation, I feel like an underrated part of Gardner's writing style is the repetition, like he'll introduce a concept and then restate that about four or five times. I'd like to ask him what he, what his intention is with that, because he says that his common usage is, is very intentional.
1: Yes, uh, I believe I, I, I did, we, we saw this on our super exclusive discord server, but <laughs> if you're on Lit about, about a few months back when they... The Jannies didn't immediately nuke all the crocodile threats. You'd say the same thing. If I remember, and I speak under correction here, it's supposed to mimic the pattern of human speech, or at least how Chicagoans talk, because uh, you and I, we, we don't talk like that. So if you read it out and you, you pause at the commas, it's supposed to sound like a real, actual guy from the... Is Chicago Rust Belt? Those guys. That's how he talks.
0: Yeah, Chicago's sort of Rust. Illinois is Rust Belt. Chicago's a bit bit shiny. Yeah, okay. I can see that. Sort of. I can sort of see that.
1: Yeah. So, it's, I think it's supposed to be narrated, but as far as I know, nobody's ever actually done an Audible of these books. I would pay to listen to that. Not I much, would. but I, mean, I would pay.
0: He was talking about doing audiobooks, but I guess it's stalled there. No, this is definitely, I mean from the from the onset, this is an extremely online book. This is um you can sort of feel Gardner's nostalgia for Pokemon in the very first pages where he's describing the special carrying case Jerry has for all of his cars. Yes. Was, yes. yes, yes. I felt like Gardner recounting something from his childhood. This is very much yeah. uh, like the nostalgia era internet book. I certainly agree.
1: Yeah, and, and as, 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 as somebody who also grew up playing trading card games, Pokemon included, though, I mean, the highlight of my Pokemon career was getting into a fist fight with one of the other children about who owned which, rare, full art foil, or whatever it was. But, yeah, I was, I was more of a Magic the Gathering kid. I, I remember the exact same thing, like obsessively sitting down, spraying the cards over the lawn or your bedspread or wherever, Mm -hmm. Hoping to hope that the wind doesn't get them and then putting them all in little sleeves and the crap thing about being a kid here is Unlike the protagonist Jerry who can afford like serious macho indestructible sleeves You're sitting there with like the cheap-ass ultra pro ones which don't fit right and cost like one dollar per hundred and then tear in two weeks That's what you're doing. You're spending your lunch money on that This is a nostalgic book Maybe this
0: is why all of my trading cards were in tatters by the time I was 13. I can't imagine spending, like, a dollar per card on the cases when you have so many of them. I mean, my experience with Pokemon it was telling the people that played Pokemon that Yu-Gi-Oh! was better.
2: Uh, <laughs> but um, Granted, it's not.
0: In, in hindsight, it's not. But at the time, it was fun to be contrarian. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah,
1: I mean, the Yu-Gi-Oh! anime was better. Mm-hmm. In except Ooh. for one regard, okay. I, I maintain my stance that although Yu Gi Oh! or at least we're talking dual monsters here because we're, we're not like Zoomers, dual monsters <laughs> was phenomenal, dual monsters shaped me Fresh. to the person I am. But l- let me tell you, dual monsters did not have good waifus, Pokemon <laughs> BTFOs, Yu Gi Oh! in that regard, but in Does. terms of like epic moments. I mean, how many people you know go around coding Pokemon or, or the Abridged series or any of that? Nobody. But how many of us have said, "Screw the rules, I've got money." How many of us say, "Exodia, it's not possible." I mean, I do, but I've been internet poisoned since thirteen, so.
2: My grandfather that has ribos. no bad cards. Karibo. Listen, Karibo
0: is useful as as a sacrifice, I guess. I mean, listen. There, Yu-Gi-Oh. I guess Jigoku sort of incorporates the part of Yu-Gi-Oh where uh, your life was on the line, as opposed to Pokemon, which was basically anime dogfighting. If you lost in Yu-Gi-Oh, yeah. you died.
2: Yeah, it's
1: like you, you just got. I mean, I don't know if you watched the dub or the sub growing up, but I mean, I'm a dub kind of kind of lady. So with that, I'd really say. This this is on the line here, because I'm not sure what happens if you die in Jigoku. Maybe right. you die in real life, but then again, you're dead in real life. So, like, I, right. I'm putting good money on this. If you die in Jigoku, you just get sent to the fucking Shadow Realm. I mean,
0: Goku. I don't know if he... I don't know what he meant by this, but Jogoku is, I guess, hell in some sort of Japanese religion. So I figure when they died, they were already sent to hell, and in order to escape hell, you have to win some... Uh, Hyper edgy Pokemon match, and I guess that's the reward. But I don't want to get too far yeah. ahead in the book.
2: Yeah, let's go through this at least chronologically. Right, right. So of course,
1: we we have we have the guy here, and another part of this book that really stuck out to me that actually relates to this is it's provincial. Like you can right. tell that Gardner's from Chicago, and the book is set right. in Chicago. This is not a book that can be set anywhere else. I mean, you'd have to actually change stuff to do that. And I always enjoy that with a book. This might be from, you know, I'm from Africa. And if I can, you know, read a book and say, ah, this, this connects to my own experiences. That, that's fun. But even seeing it for others, that's a joy to read, at least for me. Because it feels like you've got a lot more soul in the book. And this is already with the nostalgia, very soulful text. Yeah, I mean, it's so provincial that
0: Gardner is referencing local politics in the opening pages. He's referencing like some dispute. In the beginning of the book, Jerry goes on like a two paragraph aside about how environmentalists want to tear down this steel mill in order to uh, foster tourism in the area. And then, like, after that spiel, he immediately falls up by saying, But Jerry doesn't really care about politics, so he doesn't know why he was thinking about that. Chicago is to Gardner as Maine is to Stephen King. All of his books very much They sort of scream oh this takes place in Chicago by the way. It
1: it certainly does. And I, I think again that, that kind of writing style of going on the rant then immediately excusing with with well, I don't care about <laughs> politics, so I don't know why I'm thinking about this. That that is like I'm not going to say fan fiction because I've seen this in books that, you know, are actually published like this one is. Okay. But it is certainly a book that screams internet, that right. screams somebody who's actually had this debate right. and is care cared enough to be public about it. I, like, I don't know if Gardner has a Twitter. That, that's, your, that's your area of expertise, bro, but I am highly confident he has had this rant. Well, ab- absolutely. Personally. He has gotten it into
0: it with some book environmentalists about how essential that steel mill is to the Chicago skyline or whatever. This is him having it out in the book. It's, it's
1: cathartic. So, okay. yeah, so I, I think with that, it is definitely a Chicago book. Well, I, I don't think Jigoku is, is in Chicago. Personally, the closest I've seen to Jigoku in my personal experiences is a little square uh, Pretoria called Demurt, but that, that's really getting off topic because I mean, if you're already in Pretoria, you're doing something wrong. If you're in Demurt, <laughs> well, I mean, you've done something wrong enough to get damned. So.
0: Jigoku seems to only have, you know, dog fighting rings and sports arenas. So there are plenty of Jigokus all over the yep. South.
1: I mean, we've got them here, too, in SA. I and mean, granted, it's not so much dog fighting as it is uh, rugby. But, you know, same principle, same mind of bloodshed. <laughs> We're not here to talk about rugby. We are here to talk about Jigoku. And so, yeah, after we have this whole rant about the steel mill and Gardner's extremely uncompromising take on environmentalists, because as although this is one thing i have noticed in various *Horus call books as they are in a shared universe the characters do not necessarily share gardner's unique understanding of the universe cough flat earth cough but right you can you can sort of many parse it in the narration with the way he certainly d- depicts uh, special interest groups or his stance on things like climate change. And it's, it's a neat aside mm-hmm. to see. This is not a book which can work on death of the author. Right. I mean, likes to, he likes to just sprinkle in
0: his more unique perspectives, so he doesn't completely scare off the reader, but it'll pop up on occasion. Sort, yeah. of, like, uh, sort of like hypnosis.
2: Yeah,
1: so we have this, this rant, and then we have another description of how sexy Jerry's trading card holders are. And let let me just read this to you and imagine this because this guy's like (laughs) uh, about 12, 13. Yeah, all Gardner's characters are at least upper middle class. I mean, I was upper middle class and I could not afford these things. So the young man places his trading cards in his back pocket. They're in snapshots, hard plastic card holders, which meant to protect the quality of trading cards, such as his high quality card containers, which kept the cards safe from most damage. Having put his Jogoku cards in his back pocket, he peers down to the horizon across from him. We've we got a word for that, down in the these side. Cheese boy. A boy so rich that his mother packs him a sandwich with cheese on it <laughs> for lunch. A, these are cheese boy card sleeves, and I, I'm just imagining how difficult these would be to shuffle, because he, they are noted multiple times to be rigid. Is he like walking around with a water 35 here, because he splays them out earlier. What is the state of this guy's pockets?
0: He says that not only are they waterproof, they're also somehow lightning proof. I'm wondering how, how do you carry around like a pack of 100 cards that are covered with an inch thick piece of plastic that protects them from everything. Hell, I think these cards are getting
1: sent to the Shadow Realm. (laughs)
0: <laughs> they came with him to hell, and then they came back out of hell. With yeah, no, these... T- they're, they're quite durable. If he brought these to school, he would be robbed immediately. Hell no, if
1: he brought <laughs> these to school, he could deflect bullets. These so, lines, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so he takes these, these treading card holders, built from the shit they built Fort Knox out of. <laughs> and he takes them to, to the steel mill. He doesn't know why. It's the same reason he subconsciously thinks about how lame environmentalists are, he, he takes them to the steel mill, and he sees thunder, lightning. It's very frightening. And then, holy shit! I didn't notice our uh, first
0: reading that he sort of just walks to the steel mill without being prompted. Like this twelve-year-old kid just has it in him. Oh, it's it's storming. Let me
2: walk to the steel mill, as one does. I mean, I got up to shit as a 12-year-old, but I mean, I had at least the courtesy to do
1: it on a farm. Like, I remember distinctly taking one of those slingshot catapults, loading up... Fuck, I think it must have been like a 9-volt battery. And I sniped this guy off a quad bike. He needed stitches. Then I ran over his dog. The dog survived. I, I cannot remember if it needed stitches. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff you get up to that, that's, you know, a wholesome, man, right. and it builds character. Right. But steel mills, man? No. I mean, obviously, pollution we... does not exist in God's universe, but no, 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 then no. again, that's I'm not crazy. sure his God railings do either. Crazy environmentalist stuff,
0: with the pollution.
1: Yes, uh, of
0: course. When he sees the Helbert, uh I'm still not sure, after reading the book twice, whether or not it's supposed to be a hallucination or something that actually exists.
1: Likewise. Because, I mean, he sees it, and it's pretty real. And it even, you know, blasts him. As Pokemon are wont to do to random guys. This never kills
2: them. And somehow, this does not kill Jerry either. It does, however, put him into a coma for like 30 years. (laughs) One, after the strike,
0: and... In his parents say that he's been struck by lightning, but yes. after being struck by whatever he's been struck by, he's also still conscious and functioning for, like, minutes afterwards. If we're supposed to take it at face value, I get it, but I don't think we are. So I'm not sure what actually is supposed to have
1: happened.
2: with, with Yeah. Theory.
1: I mean, I've been electrocuted personally, and that doesn't immediately knock you out. But uh, it definitely fucks you up. Couldn't move my hand for the whole day. Last time I grabbed an electric fence. Well, okay, it wasn't, but... The last time I grabbed an electric fence in that specific part of my Right. But of course, God has to stress that, and I won't. thankfully, comma, his trading cards were fine, comma, <laughs> as he had placed them in airtight containers, comma, in his pocket. Do you see what I'm talking about? We get right. the comma, we get the repetition, we get this, this it's like a Chekhov's
0: gun, but it's shooting blanks. His cards don't actually really factor in the rest of the story. Just the fact that they, they still exist, I guess. He's explaining why
1: his parents still have those cards when he wakes up on the other side, I guess. Though, it, it's not like you can just find cards that are intact 30 years ago. I mean, right. you can still find, like, Magic the Gathering cards from the early sets that are completely fine. You don't need to store them in Fort Knox. You just keep them out of direct sunlight and don't play on them
2: in concrete.
0: We
1: should uh, ask
0: Gardner if he has pictures of his Pokemon carrying, as cases.
2: They I want to see
0: if these things exist.
1: They definitely survived last twenty years. So yeah, because I mean, if I was a twelve year old from like the early nineties, late eighties, what I would have done uh, is just like fucking laminated the cards. Mm. I'd they destroy cheap- the collector of value. Or you know, if you're you really really lame, you take that transparent Sellotape,
2: just wrap them around in that. Hundreds. Jerry wakes up after getting the terror strike from the hellbird, right? And he's 20 years later in a hotel room, sorry, a hospital room, big difference. And he's there, his parents are there and, and his parents are saying like,
1: Oh, comma, thank goodness. You've woken up. You're finally back, comma, son, ellipses and. Of course, the hospital is named Brand Hospital, which I presume is in the actual Chicago area. Probably. And it, it takes him like, uh, takes him like three pages before we get to the, the real thrust of the, oh shit, twist. Right. Before that, you know, it's, it's revision of the stuff we literally saw three pages ago. And
2: then, Jerry finds out he's aged 20 years. I heard part of um, that discovery is after three pages
0: of Jerry just having a normal conversation with his parents, I guess the author remembers that if it's been 20 years, his parents should look significantly older. But so he specifically addresses that by, by Jerry asking, shouldn't you guys, you know, look 20 years older? And, of course, the answer is that, oh, we do look 20 years older. You're just, uh, your vision's blurry because you've
1: been in a coma for 20 years. Again, this is, this is internet strategics. I remember <laughs> doing these sort of fixes myself. Like, reading the comment section nitpicks, and then fixing it in the next chapter, retroactively.
2: I mean, obviously, this is a book, but you you can tell that Gardner has the same thought process. That's that's really interesting. Despite this being like, now, 20 years in the future, the excuse we're going
1: for is, oh, your vision's blurry, kid. We've aged gracefully, despite our son being in a coma for 20 years.
2: (laughs) Not Future medicine makes me look young. Right, right,
0: right. Future 2018 medicine. Makes him look... Um, it's also funny that they're sitting there waiting for him to wake up. I guess they still visit him daily after a 20-year coma. It's quite
1: devout. I, yeah, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I'd say I'd do that if I had kids, but I, I don't think I would do that. <laughs> no, is that. That is one thing we find. Save, I think, for like the... The Call of the Crocodile Family in the first half of the book, which, uh, spoilers, is not what it seems. Like, the family structures
2: in Horror's Call are idyllic. Like, everyone is just 100% on point here. It's another just unique
1: thing you notice, reading these. Right, right. But yeah, Jerry wakes up, he's 20 years older, his parents are about the same, because his vision's blurry, and... Of course, you know, Jerry is now immediately spoking out, not about the fact ah, shit, I've just lost 20 years of my life and my father tells me he dyes his hair. No, it's (laughs) the Halbert is real and that means all the other Jigoku,
2: like Jigokumon exist too. That is the plot we're going with. So, what confused me about this part is that it feels like
0: the book thinks Jerry was in some sort of Jigoku world while in the coma because he is desperate to go back there but we never actually see him and he seems yeah. completely unfamiliar with the Jigoku world once he actually uh,
1: arrives there i'm not yeah kind of confused with what's happening i don't know if you yeah i had similar personally i just thought he was dreaming or like the shock of seeing you know the, the fact that bird imprinted it and obsessed this kid who's already you know needs a few more real life friends right so but I also thought it's like, it was such a weird pause in the book to whack him in a coma, instead of just, like, dream sequencing it, actually then have him walk around, introduce only then the main villain, and then have the guy kill himself off to actually do the Jigoku thing. Right. It does seem it like a such weird a, entry point. Yeah, it's, it's unintuitive, and it adds this level of fluff that is exactly like the steel mill environmentalist thing. It's, it's padding, but at the same time, it's, it's clearly important enough to Gardner that
2: it's not just Fuller.
1: Right. And I guess the
0: uh, killing of Croft and the terminally ill kid there has to be a reason why he's in this Jigoku world. Although well, that could have been explained in the world itself by the kid with a bit of expedition.
2: Yeah.
1: So it's like, yeah, I don't know about you, man, but I, I, I like me guys like uh, Liam. Like, on the street. It's it's like, oh, random motherfuckers want to kill everyone? Yeah, man, they mugged my friends last week. Did we do the exact same thing and walk around at midnight? Yes. During a blackout? Yes. Did we get mugged? No. But, like, you just meet these people. They don't need motives. They're just pricks. Like, how is Jerry being in a 20-year coma
0: actually, how does it actually affect the story other than bringing it to the modern day? It, It does not. He acts like a twelve-year-old for the entirety of the story because, I mean, he is, I guess, mentally twelve.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and as well with that, he is also physically twelve for most of it because he, he gets transported back into you right. know his his twelve-year-old form when he's in the Jigoku world, which I, I think is like the primary reason he just
2: doesn't you know slap the shit out of Liam. It is. It is he's also like right. shrimpy again.
0: Doesn't just throttle with the kid. I guess that added yeah. to the confusion whether or not he was in yeah. this dream, dream world for 20 years.
1: Yeah, because it, it seems like very intuitive on how he gets there. because He just thinks, ah, electricity, let, my sh- let me shoot myself the defibrillator, right. which kills him. It, it doesn't just, you know, knock him out. It, it, like, it's text that he fucking dies, and it's Gardner text, so you, you know like five times. Right. And what truly blows my mind, pun intended, is that Jerry is 12 again but he still has the scars from the defibrillator incident.
2: Right,
0: right.
1: And I guess
0: I guess that adds to the
1: idea that they are in this sort of
0: hell escape, because both he yes. and Liam have their suicide scars. Liam, yeah. Liam is literally trulling blood with slit in his throat the entire time. So Whenever he walks, there's a trail of blood leaking behind
1: him. Because his wheelchair goes too, and that the kid is is wheelchair bound. Right, right. He's like, oh, there's like bald, Make-A-Wish Foundation-looking coma kid, right, rolling around in this wheelchair. Which, I quote, no, I don't actually quote it. I paraphrase. He greased it with the blood of the Jigokumon he has killed before. Like that's pretty metal. Right. But that's that's also about as metal as the book gets. They're you know, in, in hell, but there's no, you know, Dante's Inferno here. It's just it's just wandering around.
0: It's basically six square miles of Chicago. Hell is basically a bit of Chicago. That's what I was um saying. Only thing that seems to be in this world is empty buildings and forests, these two kids, and then one arena at the center. Doesn't seem to yeah, be anything else here.
2: Yeah, it's
1: completely deserted. And right, I, right. here, I, I actually quote, Welcome to Jugoku." a sign reads atop a gigantic billboard. It was a billboard, comma, which hadn't been present in the normal world. Not in the Chicago of his home dimension. This is because this wasn't Chicago. It was Jogoku, comma, the world in which Jerry's favorite
2: card game, comma, took place. And it's like, so this is Chicago. Right. But the billboard and everything. I want to see the population statistics for this then. You know, like, uh, how many people live in Jigoku, Illinois?
0: I guess guess everyone else in Chicago that died went to heaven. Only these two schmucks are left in this Pokemon hellscape.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, we see people die later on. We've got, like, a, a freaking space marine who gets killed later on, and he winds up here, along with a bona fide lizard guy, a reptilian. And I don't know that much about the greater Chicago area, but I'm not sure if you get reptilians or space Marines there, but you've got this halo looking motherfucker he appears lizard guy and that's about really all the rest of the cast that actually gets any personality apart from you know the dude who owns the arena right, everyone else yeah the, the, the Dominus who looks like Zeus from the Right. The Age of Mythology cover art, the box art. He he looks like that guy. So it, it's just Chicago, and I'm suspecting it's geographically Chicago as well. Like right. you you could walk the, the outskirts of Chicago, and you, you'd see the same same buildings, same same landscape.
0: I'm sure the arena is a photo replica of Soldier Field. I'll see if he mentioned that, but um. Yeah, I'm wondering why, because obviously Jerry and Liam get transported to Hell, Chicago because they died there, but why Why are these other entities getting sent to Chicago? What do they do to yeah. like, wind up in Pokemon Chicago?
1: Yeah, it, it's like, it, it's plausible and, and it works on its own internal logic until it just doesn't. Right. Because, like, it, it's explicitly not, you know, Jidoku fans who are sent here because we see the Space Marine later on. He, he just up and bare knuckles the lizard man and his minion. He doesn't, you know, pull out Charizard or anything. He just, he just them there. them being Afrikaans slang for being the shit out of guy. There, there, there's no, you know, Jigoku fandom in the far future. It's just, just violence. And, and so it's like, why, why is he here? What, what do you have to do to get sent to Chicago? It's, it's not like Dominus sends them here. Right. No.
0: I guess there's really no so,
1: explanation for it. Yeah, it's just completely up to the dice roll. You die, maybe, maybe you get to play yeah. Pokemon, maybe you don't. And so Jerry winds up here, and we have a, a polite introduction to Liam, who's uh, the kind of guy who's like a staffer if he wasn't already in a hostel. And then we get exposition on what jogoku means. Like the next paragraph after the welcome to Jigoku billboard, we get. The, the fact that it is a reference to The Dwelling Place of Sinners, comma, in Japanese Buddhism. That's what the name Jigoku was based on. And so, so we're just told this. Nobody explains this. It's just in the narration. There's no subtext to pick on. It's not like sprinkled in throughout.
0: It's not like, I wonder what Jigoku means. And you go to Google, it's like, here is the metaphor. Here is what's yeah. happening.
1: Yeah, there's no, no subtext to an F. Gardner novel. It's just text. <laughs> and so after Jerry, you know, he sees the billboard and we don't get a reaction from him or anything. We immediately segue into Jigoku monsters are freaky looking dudes because this is a dark, edgy Pokemon fanfic. And then you have to get the rod. Now, I don't know if Gardner's played d DD, I think there's like a coin flip chance. But in the game, there's this thing called uh the rod of, of the might. And it basically you can hit people with it. Or you can make them do what you want. And the Jigoku rod is basically that. Except it looks like a Japanese katana, because this is vaguely Oriental, but it's also still Chicago. And then Jerry is just immediately given a giant beetle called Goliath.
2: As in Goliath, the Beetle.
0: Hey, Goliath, I think, is the only non-fucked up entity in this old Jigoku world. He's a giant beetle.
2: Which I guess is creepy in
0: and of itself, but. He isn't turned inside out, or he doesn't have his guts exposed. Just a giant beetle.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we see,
1: I think Liam's, yeah, Liam's go-to monster is just a big bug. But, I mean, that's also right. still pretty yeah. fucked up. Yeah, a gigantic yellow jacket, I mean, I don't like little yellow jackets already. And then they have a fight, and then they agree, you know, maybe we should do this at the arena so the plot goes somewhere.
2: And we do. So, we do that, and then, of course, You know, we have to remind everyone that Jerry was in a coma for 20 years,
1: despite this having no significant bearing on the plot. And despite, you know, the chronology of this being set in the modern day, meaning absolutely fuck all to anything, because (laughs) nothing changes because they're not in the modern day. They're in the Jigoku world for 90% of the story. So it's completely inconsequential what, what time period this is. But Liam has to say, you know, man, Jigoku's is still popular 20 years later. That's F admiring, showing how much he loves Pokemon again. Yeah, it's just, you almost just like take it on the face that, yeah, this is going to be popular. It's Pokemon. We we Correct. know this. Exactly. We don't need to be told that Pokemon is popular. And, and another thing that just blows my mind here is the names. Because, you know, at least in English... You know, Pokemon have some pretty interesting names. Some are just Japanese, like uh, Pikachu. Maybe that, you know, stands for Electric Mouse in Japanese. But here on on this side of the East-West divide, it sounds kind of cool. Like Charizard, because, you know, it's a lizard that has fire, so it char things. Like Squirtle, because it's a turtle which squirts. You know, the names are, you know, cute and amusing, but with Jogoku, it's just Goliath. It's a Goliath beetle. Buzzy, it's a, it's a it's a yellow jacket death ape because it's a it's an ape. <laughs> that beats things, to death. things. To death. That
0: was the name of the death ape was was pretty. It was the funniest part of the book for me.
2: It's very on the nose. Yeah, it's like well, no shit, it's a death ape. It, Hel- it's certainly not a life ape. <laughs> yeah, like
0: hellbird, yeah, it's a bird with you know exposed organs. It's scary
2: hellbird and its attack I... is terror strike yeah but what it's like is just also tautological to me because they're already in hell this is Jigoku. it's,
1: it's like hell if you're a japanese buddhist so I mean, of, of course it's a hellbird it's, it's a bird from hell <laughs> well we don't see you know hell death ape or you know hell buzzing it's just this, this is the hellbird you know i would have at least called it like terror dactyl so you know after they they agree you know we're going to fight elsewhere because of course we have to push the plot to the arena and build tension somehow. Right. Jerry goes on this, you know, quest to walk to what's called the Creature Coliseum, which I'm convinced is just like the the White Sox baseball ground.
2: And he goes there, and that's where he picks up the rest of his crew, which is a lizard. Named Faust. Yeah.
0: That's the actual that's not a name, that's just a description of the beast. I wonder what
2: referencing that because i don't remember yeah but the lizard itself is not remotely faustian it does not make yeah. bargains well, that's
0: kind of what confused me so i assume he was referencing some other property maybe that has a dragon with that name
1: yeah maybe but, i mean either that or this is just gardener doing gardener stuff right. yeah and then you know we see also on on the, the trip towards the creature coliseum jerry's true heart of love and goodness which we have not seen before because all he's done before is, you know, electrocute himself after chipping out. He decides, you know, I'm not gonna actually going to fight just random stuff and grind for XP. No, I'm going to fight things that want to fight me. I'm a, I'm a better person than Liam. I'd say no, but this is what we're going with. So, you know, he, he doesn't immediately whack random stuff he runs into. He he, he wanders around a bit t- towards this, like, pseudo Chicago wilderness. Until eventually he climbs the mountain, hits the waterfall, and sees a lizard, Faust, a scaled beast that resembled a pet lizard, comma, except it was of monstrous proportions. Well, no shit, it's a monster. (laughs) Yeah, this is where the book gets very Pokemon.
0: It's basically a Pokemon episode where he's wandering through, I guess in the game it would be big old patches of tall grass waiting to get
1: an encounter. Yeah, maybe Jigoku's just like the the America, the Chicago region, because you know all the the Pokemon regions are, are themed apart around different parts of the world. Like the first were first couple were just Japan. You know you had Hoenn, and then you had Kanto, and then you had the other one. But they they did like a a Britain Pokemon episode, one 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 season of the show and a few games are just set in knock off Britain. Maybe Jigoku's just like Chicago, the Pokemon region. Yeah, and some. Dark future where, you know, Nintendo isn't raking in more money than Cadbury and the Baptist Church combined. Of Pokemon sales alone, that they, you know, have to say, well, gee, we gotta, gotta dial up the edge, but hey, where's edgy? Detroit. Now we can't do Detroit. Where else is edgy? Congo. Now we can't do Congo. Where else is edgy? Kiev. Now it's topical. Let's do Chicago. <laughs>
2: Chicago
1: Pokemon. It, 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 feels like, it feels like that precise level of not giving a shit. Except one person in the writer's room is super fucking motivated to give a shit about this. And that man? F. Gardner. And you know, unlike with, you know, Pokemon, which... At least in the games, you, you see the mechanics of stuff and, you know, how it works and... There's a bit of exposition in the, in the anime about what an attack does, what it's weak to, you know, how badly it's going to fuck up your guy if it hits. We get none of that here. And so, it, it really just killed the tension in the fights for me, because... You just see Jerry and Liam and the other guys just, you know, yelling, ah, don't, don't fall over. You can, you can take this hit. And I'm thinking, like, how, how dangerous is this? How many hits does this thing have? What, what's its hit points? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, weak to this? Is it strong against this? Like, and then all the, the monsters, you know, die in three hits anyway. I'm thinking, well, they're all made of tissue paper. Why well, is nobody playing metal types?
0: <laughs> yeah, like, Gardner surprisingly completely avoids gamification of Jigoku.
1: Yeah. It's just like dogfighting at this point. Right, exactly.
0: Exactly like dogfighting. I guess it's supposed to uh, cement the hell elements, maybe?
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's certainly, like, dark and gritty and serious if, you know, the attack's hit and there's, you know, blood and screaming and stuff. But it also feels like, well, who am I I really feeling is actually at the advantage or disadvantage here? Because, yeah, the fights just don't have tension without the gamification. There's... I mean, there's a bit of tension yeah. with Goliath and Faust fight, but um,
0: most fights are just one uh, monster stomping the shit out of another monster. And yeah. there, there are very few actual special attacks that aren't just, I guess Goliath in the same fight we're talking about with Faust has an energy blast, but the ultimate uh, monster's special attack is just, at
1: the end of the story, is just pounding the shit out of whoever he's fighting. Yeah, it's just going around It's like Okay. It's like, yeah, just, just be a Winston. Russell is Jimmy's. Right. I, I'm just totally bemused by this, because like, we, we see the fighting, but because it's so abstract, these are like Pokemon. Without the gamification, we don't actually know how strong they are. Right. So yeah, a lot of the time, it just does generate to special move or just overwhelm the other guy. So I mean, if you, you read a book with, with you know, fight scenes in it, like two guys fighting, you know, you know the, the Jack Reacher novels are a great example of this. You, you can tell that Jack Reacher's you know, a tough, no-nonsense guy. I mean, he doesn't have a, literally a power level written out, but you, you can tell, okay, he's like ex-special forces. He wanders around beating people up for a living. He's a serious dude. So when he gets like three on one and wins, you think, oh, well, yeah, you know, it's, that was risky, but he pulled it off because he's Jack Reacher. But with this, you, you don't get any of that because like we don't have a frame of reference for how powerful Goliath is here. We don't even know if he's like a rare card in the real world.
0: He doesn't really have a nature or anything. I mean, his his special move is energy blast, which doesn't really. Everyone else's move set is sort of related to what kind of animal they are. But I don't think beetles shoot lasers. It's no, there's no theme. There's no real tension because we don't, like you said, we don't know what these monsters are supposed to do or what type of monster has an advantage other than uh, Hellbird is a special monster that's super powered or whatever. And at the end, there's another yeah. super powered monster. But the the fights just go exactly as the plot dictates. They have to go. It kind of loses the magic of wondering. Okay, how is this fire type going to do against this fairy type or whatever?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's that. And you know, of course, there's also like a supernatural afterlife. So nobody gets tired or you know has to sit down or take a purse or anything. They just keep walking. I thought right. that makes sense. But it also feels like. There's very little development of character in the novel or real commitment. It's just like Jerry gets his two Jigokumon because the plot says he has to have two Jogokumon Uh-huh. Because the, you need the twist of having the third secret guy later on. There, there's no... Or at least there's very little bonding or, you know, group actions or something. Because they spend, like, at the most two days together. If that. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, because... Um... The whole turn of the book is that Jerry is supposed to be, in order to get this wish or whatever, he has to be a, a good person. But Jerry is yes. already showing himself as a good person by like page, by chapter five, essentially. Yeah. What the book is building towards is already built pretty early. Okay, so if Jerry has no stakes because he can't get sent to the Shadow Realm in the fights. And you don't really care much about the Pokemon being fought. It's not like Pikachu where you're every time he gets hurt, you're worried because he's been established as his mascot character. It's, yeah and what's the what's the thrust what's the tension of the book
1: well I, I, I guess the tension is that you know liam says to dominus he's like god but not you know if i win i want everyone to have a life as shitty as me the make-a-wish <laughs> foundation kid who didn't get his wish <laughs> right and, and it's like okay that's tension but it's it's not tension with attachment it's like do i care about anyone else in this universe well, you know okay maybe if i lived in like irl chicago i'd have a sentimental attachment to this mm-hmm. but otherwise i mean jerry's parents we've seen all 15 minutes of and they're not really very remarkable in any way they're just nice people but okay so you have know, the net population of chicago the net population of the universe is two nice people and liam says oh i'm gonna make the live shit if i win the fight and impress mm-hmm. dominus that's like well, duh, you have to stop him because he's being a prick. There's no personal impetus for Jerry himself to stand in and save the world Though one thing that is done well is establishing the main
0: threat, which is not Liam, but a Hellbird, which is we're introduced to after the after he collects Faust in his Pokemon team.
2: He Yes scale
0: a mountain and at the top of the mountain they're confronted by the Hellbird and Jerry is very curious as to whether this giant pterodactyl with his abdomen open, who screams and has a special move called the terror strike, he's wondering whether this animal will join his team of good guys, and he's very confused as
1: to why it's attacking them. Yeah, despite the scenario being Pokémon, where the monsters attack you, right? It's like a core cool gameplay loop, and so we eventually make it to the creature coliseum, and and I, I stand corrected because I, I've pulled the the ebook up right now as I'm speaking, and it is not, in fact, the White Sox baseball ground. It's a Roman Colosseum. Right. And like, I don't know, man, if you've ever been to, to Italy, Rome specifically, and you've seen the Colosseum there. But i got to say, it's like the only you know, ancient thing I've seen that really lived up to the hype. Like Eiffel Tower, meh, Table Mountain, it's, it's fine. But no, that the, you know, the Creature Colosseum and it's Roman analog, the, you know, Roman Colosseum. That actually looked pretty cool. It was like an oh, oh shit moment. The, the people from the past are just like us. They they also watched people blixem each other in front of a crowd of thousands in a really big building. And so we, we just go here for the final fight, which I'm confident is not in Chicago.
0: We got there a little quick. Uh, That's one thing I noticed about this particular part of the book. I feel like uh, the, we didn't spend really enough time in the getting there part. Justify even yeah. having that, that part, that aside. It feels like an aside instead of a, a section of the book that serves a purpose.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just like, uh, you know, making time to make time. Yeah, it's just Fuller. It's, it's the greatest example of Fuller because they could have just literally been zapped into Creature Colosseum, done the exposition there. And saved about 30 pages. And so we get to the cold sim and we see a fight, which is actually a reference to another one of the Horace Calls stories. And, and we see that it's a, it's a reference and it's one I hadn't really got because it, it fits in the story. Oh, this dude's his mascot is just a dolphin that talks mm-hmm. plausible, but no, it, it's actually the dolphin, the capital D dolphin from hunger of the kangaroo. Oh. Because it, you know, it talks and it has a scar on its head. Just like the, the one from the kangaroo book. I haven't, yeah, I haven't read Hunger
0: of the Kangaroo. Are there any other, I mean, yeah, no. is he the only thing from another book in this
1: arena scene? Uh, gee, I, I, I don't know. I, I think like the the space marine guy who appears later on might be a reference to something. But I, I don't know what, because I'm like, Hunger of Kangaroo is the third Gardner will come on, and even then, it's only I'm a, I'm halfway through, so I'm gonna, like kind of cut up now that the the boy and his talking dolphin die at the end. Is that that that's uh that's a spoiler I wasn't expecting, given how the book was going. But again, it's like if you die in Chicago, you you get shadow wrapped here.
2: Yeah. Okay, so it's funny because Jerry is so confused that
0: the uh, dolphin can go to heaven, but I mean, you think that if the dolphin can go to Hell to Buddhist hell. There's really nothing barring him from also going to heaven.
2: Well, I mean, it is a dolphin. It's a uh, okay fair. It's a special dolphin. It's a fucked up dolphin. Yeah, the soul. I mean, this is a,
1: a dolphin untouched by the, the fallout of original sin, almost. Yeah, but so I mean, we have the dolphin here, and it has a fight, and it and it wins with a wave of psychic energy that fucks up the centipede, and it uh, it gets its wish, and it, it comes to heaven. And it goes with the boy because they're best friends. Right. And this is, in fact, discussed in the book, man, because Jerry wonders out loud that the dolphin can come to heaven. And and I'm wondering, like, what world is this? Because is this like our world anymore? I'm pretty confident that even in Gardner's worldview, you don't have semi-divine entities with the power to grant dolphins souls that can go to heaven. I mean,
0: that was clearly no ordinary dolphin. That's the explanation that the God figure gives as to why the dolphin go to heaven. And Does he explain why the dolphin was in hell in the first place? Well, how do dolphins go to hell? What do they do? I mean, dolphins do a lot of shit that is worthy of hell, to be
1: fair. Okay, Grant, they're, they're like the chimps of the sea. <laughs> Presuming that chimps are actually real, which is, which is out for debate. Yeah, it's, it's in contention. Y- yes. I mean, you know, personally, my theory is that chimps are actually real. But they're like demonic entities.
0: I could buy the chimps as demons thing. I will never get close enough to a chimp to confirm whether they're real or if they're demons. But I'll take other people's word for it.
1: Yeah, it's like, it's not really a conversation now. It's its own podcast episode. But like, growing up in Africa, I've had ample contact with non-human primates. Not, Not chimps specifically. But I mean, you know, vervets, marmosets, baboons, and most of them are just like other animals, but like sort of people. Like vervets are just cats,
2: baboons are just dogs. Chimps are like people, but you know, evil and wrong. <laughs> Dolphins are just sea chimps. Yeah. And then
1: we run into my, my favorite character through this whole book, Commander Chrono, the space marine guy. He needs to get back to the time he came from to fight the lizard people. <laughs>
2: His purpose is to give him the Ex Machina, and that's the purpose he ultimately serves. Yes, and the the ridiculous thing with this is that it's canon. It's said, repeated
1: even, that Kratos has no idea what Jogoku is. (laughs) He's just here
2: to hand over this Ex Machina, first fight a monster, and then go home. It's this dude out of nowhere. It's a big lipped alligator moment. Right. So as far as I know, we, we do not see Commander Crono in any other Horrors Call book. But he's here right now. He's here and he beats the shit out of Reptilian he's fighting. Which, I mean, Reptilian,
0: he's not a Jigoku monster. No, that's just that's <laughs> a thing from real life. There's just having some sort of fight to the death between two real-life things in the middle of this Pokemon tournament not explains and the good guy wins yeah. and fucks off after, after yeah. giving him the x Machina.
1: yes and and i quote the, the the reptilian because the dialogue is like it's not you know mortal enemies here it's like the guy at the gym you don't like <laughs> i'll do it a gravely voice shouts in the audience stepping out from one of the seats comma the challenger emerges. I know who this guy is, and it's about time, Connor. Somebody took him down a peg or two. It would be my pleasure to kick the great commander Chrono's ass and put him in his place. The challenger says. It's like, that is, you got the wrong gym, leather clubs two blocks down kind of dialogue. But <laughs> it's not the dialogue you have to say to your mortal enemy. Right, in a death match, You
0: know, I mean, you take, if you're killing him and condemning him to hell forever, you're doing a little more than taking him down a peg or two.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no. It's like, this is this is dialogue for the guy who stole your boyfriend. It, it's not a dialogue <laughs> for the, the guy who you want destroyed to a suffering of eternal torment. Right. So, of course, you know, the reptilian loses, despite being, you know, big and scary and a lizard person.
0: Yeah, the good guys win, which is a weird part of this whole tournament scene, is that there is no like moment where you are like, "Hmm, a good guy just got brutally murdered." This shit is real. It's always okay. Here is a good guy. Here is a bad guy. Here is the interesting character. The interesting character you like wins every single time.
2: Yes, it's like
1: you are rooting for them and they just win. There is no. Yamcha. It's almost propagandistic.
0: Hmm. I mean, obviously the reptilian couldn't be allowed to win, but there is no Yamsha getting killed by the by the main villain. It's just.
1: Yeah, there's like no sense of danger because there's this immediate precedent of, oh, if you're a nice guy, you're just always going to win. It's like you're always going to have like some back pocket to the villain's evil scheme. It's like, of course, the reptilian, you know, has mind control eyes. What does Commander Crono do? He just knows how to fight people hand to hand without making eye
2: contact. This raises more questions than it does answers. It's interesting if you assume that Gardner is like a boxer, so
0: he's actually referencing something that is an actual part of combat, which is you shouldn't look at an opponent's size. I also feel like it might not be that, and it's just, well, I've introduced his power, and now I need to introduce a counter. Oh, he doesn't have to look. It's like, maybe
1: he is a reference. Yeah, Gardner is a a self-proclaimed martial artist. I would have asked him to just know this, but it's like, it's also said that Commander Crono is wearing a helmet with a tinted visor. And oh. he d- deliberately has to then say, oh, no, it's not my cool hat. It's, it's my martial <laughs> arts abilities. It's, it's, it's this internet ad-hoc fix. Right. I love the idea
0: that Garner writes all of these stories like fan fiction, where he's not allowed to go back and change a after or anything. He said he has to fix it, just
1: niggerate something and fix a pothole. In- I've tried to write like that And it just degenerates into arguing with the comments of the guy, with like the Pikachu profile pic <laughs> I'm thinking like, asshole, what are you doing? This is an MLP fanfiction site <laughs> So there, and then we have, you know, the, the introduction to Liam Again,
2: he's, he comes back And he has the Hellbird And he then goes on the spiel about, you know
1: I want to make the world just a worse place. I want to watch Burr. that That's my wish, Dominus. And Dominus says, uh, okay. Like, fine. And then Jerry realizes, you know, I got to be like Commander Chrono and beat the piss out of this guy. And then we, we, you know, segue into this fight with Goliath, who's, you know, is the closest thing he has to a mascot. And then Faust, who's along for the ride. Right. It's okay. I mean Liam is so weirdly placed
0: in this story. He's established at the very beginning before we go to Jigoku. He's introduced at the start of Jerry's interest into Jigoku as this menacing figure who's already had experience in this world, killing everything he sees. And then he disappears for like half the book, not even hardly thought about. I almost forget he exists between all the reptilians and the space marines and the talking dolphin. And then hey, here's Liam. I still exist and now I've got the Mewtwo,
1: Mewtwo, Mewtwo me of the of the story. Yeah, Mewtwo. It, it's just such a it's such a weird pacing. It's like he literally wrote this on the seat of his pants. It's well, like, oh let me let me bring in the big bad. And yeah, let me let me do some other stuff. Oh yes, I have to end the story now. Big bad, come come back.
0: <laughs> the fun thing about
1: all of Gardner's novels is he writes them extremely
2: quickly. He wrote this Book in six days. Yeah. You can tell. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, mean it's, an, it's an accomplishment, but you can tell. It,
0: what's impressive is that he writes these books in six days. And, you know, the plot is like, there's nothing like really contradictory. There's some things that are like, why does this exist? Why did this happen? But there's no like plot holes. No. Very consistent work that he wrote in an
1: insanely short amount of time.
2: Yeah, it, it's 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 almost inexplicable
1: how he produces this content. But with that as framing, it's like the, the commas, the repetition, the ad hoc fixes make complete sense. He wrote right. this in six days. Of course, he thinks like this, and then you know he, he loops back, and uh, we actually have the fight. And you know Faust absolutely just BTFOs Buzzy the giant yellow jacket, and then you know. We have alive. summons the Hellbird. It's right. so like the sky darkens. There's thunder and lightning.
2: And it immediately just BTFOs Faust with terror strike. It's the Vegeta treatment. Yeah, um. and, and then it warfs Goliath too. You know, there's vomit,
1: there's blood, there's, you know, broken bug goo. And <laughs> then we go...
2: Then and Jerry's Jerry's like, jar.
1: Yeah, it's like... Got the jar from Commander Chrono, who's just like, kid, here, here, have a jar. I'm gonna, gonna just solo this Reptilian and then fuck off. You know, I thought it would be like cooler if, you know, Commander Chrono dies valiantly. Right. He gives the jar to Jerry as his you know, dying wish. And the Reptilian wishes, you know, I'm gonna, like, fuck up the future. Mm. Unless you stop me. Then Jerry's gonna, like, waste a Jigoku killing the, killing the Reptilian. And then he, you know, moves on to Liam and he's, like, down to the jar. Oh,
2: well, Jar's useful. Right. And, and out of the Jar, of course, you know, comes the egg, Capital The. The egg. Now, I kind of
0: suspect that Commander Chrono is like sequel bait. Gardner's doing a little bit of Marvel Stinger action and introducing a character that's going to appear in the work later. But out of this particular McGuffin, out of this particular Ex Machina, comes a, a giant inside-out gorilla.
1: Of course, the gorillas are not real either. So. Right, right, of
0: course. So, I mean, if it, a real inside-out gorilla would just feature a man coming out of his costume. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's like, so we, we have this inside-out gorilla, and, and, it, and it just thumps the, <laughs> the hell out. It's, it's not even a contest. It's just like, oh, well, the death ape is, you know, the, the good counterpart to the evil hellbird. You know, only people, pure heart, can, can wheel, and channel the death ape to hit things. Right. And, and then it does. And it's like really gross because just rips apart the hellbird and right. there's blood everywhere. Just pulps it. Which this is the most <laughs> insane part of the
0: novel of the book. Where this big uh not even checkoff's gun, because it was just given to him. This big MacGuffin he launches it, and the big villain, the thing that's been established as is from the very start of the novel, from the very first pages, we, uh, we see this giant, terrifying. Powerful creature that sent Jerry into a coma, that chased him off a mountain, and then as soon as the Death Aided Ape appears, menses him. Death Ape fucking turns the Hellbird into pudding in like the course of two
1: paragraphs.
2: Yeah, it's it's
1: just there's no contest. It's none. Good triumphs over evil. It's not like evil even puts up a fight. <laughs> and and then. Jerry just opens the jar again. The, the ape gets back in the jar and it's just done. The death ape
0: raises its veiny and muscular arms up in the sky. It was proud of having felled its opponent and for fighting for the side of good. The magnificent creature had fought against evil and had won. It waved its macabre arms like a boxer triumphantly celebrating a knockout. And then this is how the death ape exits stage left. A gust of wheels over to the death ape as it sweeps the majestic gorilla up. Noticing this, Jerry pushed down his jagoku rod and pulls out the jar Commando Chrono had given him. Holding the jar out, the boy takes his lid off. Sitting like a tornado, the gale rushes back into the jar, bringing the gorilla inside of it. And this whole time reading this, I can't help it. Like a terrible CGI animation of a stock, stiff gorilla model just being swirled up randomly.
2: It's, it's so... Yes, that's exactly what you'd expect to happen when you you open the tower again. Right. That I'm, I'm impressed that Gardner went there. I mean, the gust of wind sort of appears before he even thinks
0: about the jar. I'm wondering if the wind is like... How does the gust of wind even factor into this gorilla character? Because it, it's mentioned a lot. I don't really understand why this gorilla is trapped inside of a tornado. He doesn't seem to have like wind elemental powers, he seems to just punch people, so I'm wondering what, what's the point of the gale-force winds at all times.
1: It's like, I, I'd like to think that this is a Mahabharata reference, where the, you know, the big guy in the Mahabharata, Bhima, is like the son of the wind god. And despite just being like a fuck-huge guy who walks around hitting people and you know, ripping their arms off and uh, whacking them with a big stick or a mace, he's occasionally got wind powers i'm thinking it's like that but i'm also i also don't think that gardner has actually read the Habarita. so <laughs> like i would be impressed but not surprised and so we put the the jar away and it's like i'm still wondering why did commander chrono take the jar of the death ape to the future to fight the reptilians but no right Jar never comes back again he's never heard of, and of then, goku so what who
0: gave him this super powerful Jigoku creature? Did Dominus equip all of his fighters with a uh, Jigoku monster in case they forgot to bring their own? I don't. Maybe it's we'll just... find out in another F. Gardner work.
2: Yeah, it's like I, I would, if I was not already tangentially involved with Gardner's
1: writing, I-, I would just buy the book to see what happened with Crona, because he's he's just an absolute Chad and right. He's honestly more interesting than
0: Jerry as a protagonist. Much more interesting than Jerry as a protagonist. I will say, Jerry
2: is sort of... Sort of not really doing anything. I mean, he's not... He's doing a he, lot. He just... Doesn't really have much of a reason. Yeah, he's, he's just like, you know... The guy. On,
1: like... From every anime. Right. It's like, the, just the... the Everyman Kirito-looking ass protagonist. He's he's that guy, but for
2: Pokemon, he's got all the ability, but none of the flavor of Ash Kitchen. Right. He's very. I mean, he he is that sort of
0: standard character without the added caveat of being super overpowered and skilled. Like that's the draw of those characters. Jerry just sort of. Yeah. He's sort of not that great. At this Jigoku thing. He's
2: like a shonen protagonist, but. Yeah, it's just not great. Without the Datebayo or whatever. Yeah, if you you cut out the Shonen part, he's just the protagonist. Right. And also,
0: I couldn't help but picture Jerry as Jerry Seinfeld for the entirety of this novel. I've never met or heard of Jerry, so this whole time imagining him saying these things, imagining Jerry Seinfeld playing Pokemon
1: in Chicago hell, it's... It was a struggle. I was... uh, I mean, I was, I was imagining Jerry from Rick and Morty.
2: Oh. Okay, there's another Jerry. Yeah, that,
1: that was the Jerry. I'm thinking, is like that, that the backstory of the actual Jerry? (laughs) It would explain a lot, granted, but I don't think F. Gardner has consumed Rick and Morty media. Yeah, no, he doesn't seem like a type. No.
0: Now, after he, well, after the Death Ape, uh, flattens Hellbird in a truly shockingly gory display. Jerry gets his wish, which is uh, what he's established at the start of the story, which
2: is that he and Liam go back to the normal world. Yes. Which. I
0: guess it's supposed to be a turn that he also invites liam with him to the normal world so he can have a good life but uh it seems like he was already planning on doing that at like the start which is my sort of my problem jerry doesn't see, jerry seems to have made his character
2: finished his character art at like page yes. 30. yeah it's like he's he's got all the
1: development he's ever gonna get but you know, the plot's not done. So right, it's just, right. he's got to do the plot now. Right. And of course, this raises even more questions because like, now what like, What do you do now? So they decide, well, shit, we've got to go back to the, you know, the real world because Jerry's decided that he's actually kind of remorseful for being a dick to his parents after being in a curve for 20 years and then killing himself. Right. So he has to go back to the real world and make amends. He doesn't, you know, wish to be 12 years old again because that that would tie up the story too neatly.
2: <laughs>
1: but he says, you know, Dominus,
2: you know, send me and Liam back and like uncripple Liam so, you know, we can vibe. And and this happens. And
1: the story pretty much just ends there after you know Jerry comes back and says, oh gee, you know, I'm sorry for electrocuting myself again. <laughs> and then you know Liam sort of sulks over and says, you know, I'm kind of sorry for being a cunt to you and you know. Let's just
2: wrap this up by playing a game of Jogoku. The cards are still in the Fort Knox sleeves, how do you shuffle them? I don't know, and that's not addressed. Right, I mean, I have to see these sleeves. They don't make any sense to me. No.
0: He must, like, his entire deck must consist of Goliath, Hellbird, and the Death Ape. That's the only three cards, it's the only cards he can fit in his pocket.
1: Yeah, that that it's a callback to like the original Yu-Gi-Oh, where a guy would just have a deck of you know six cards in the manga, and once you're done, you're done. And the fights were literally, well, mine's a bit better than yours, so I win. You know, that's and it.
0: And the the final, uh, the final send-off we get for Jerry is him falling asleep in his hospital bed. That is that is Jerry's entire entire story. You don't get really any change from him past page thirty. Uh, we don't get to see whatever he does after waking up from hell. We don't get to see the ramifications
1: of him reviving baby Hitler. Yeah, we don't even see like the, the new cool future world because it's, it's like the modern day, but it's also sort of not because it's said that you have medicine to stop your muscles atrophying in comas. Right. Uh, it's like, well, we don't have this in the real world. Right. We, we don't get to see any cool future stuff. There are no flying cars. There's no new world order. We don't even know if the
0: steel mill's still there. Right. I mean, did the environmentalists finally
2: triumph and get rid of that steel mill? These are questions that are not adequately addressed. People demand answers. And so that was Jigoku. that That's pretty much the whole book. Uh,
1: spoiler alert if you if you care, but then again, if you're here, you've either seen it or. You're going to be so soaked now you're going to pick it up because I, yeah, I know at least on my side, I kind of railed on this
2: one, but frankly, despite all of that, I enjoyed it. I read this thing in two days. It was actually fun,ful and exciting experience. I read it in a similar amount of
0: time and I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, this was mostly, I guess it ended up being mostly criticism, mostly trying to, uh, trying to figure out how, trying to work through some confusion, I guess. Yeah, I really had fun with this book, and I did not find it a chore at all to read again prior to this episode. And I have some other Gardener books, and I'll be reading more Gardener books.
1: Yeah, certainly, likewise. I'm definitely going to finish Hungry of Kangaroo, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably do one Horace Call every month, because yeah, I've got a Kindle in the minute description. Yeah, I know I sold out to Bezos, but uh, what can you do? So, you know, they're all on there, so I'm probably just going to do, like, one a month. Because, I mean, despite the weirdness, no, actually, because of the weirdness, these things are a blast.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You, you can pick one up, you, you know, basically what you're in for, but there's always, you know, something to you, there's a new theme, there's a new twist, and it's fun. Nobody writes like F. Gardner. So, I mean, you can read fanfic, and good fanfic gets close to this, but it doesn't have that unique stylistic edge. It doesn't have the written in six days
2: mm-hmm.
1: on the back. Well, it's not literally on the back, but, I mean, it doesn't have that reputation. It right. is a unique property and it's that's interesting and the nostalgia aspect of somebody being sincere but at the same time actually doing new stuff is right. is also enjoyable.
0: Commander Chronos is quintessential F Gardner. Commander Chronos producing the McGuffin killing a reptilian a, a reptilian <laughs> is quintess in the middle of the book is quintessential F Gardner and you can't get that
2: anywhere else. Uh, that, that's what you come for. You, you come for chrono
1: and you, you read the rest of the book for context. Right.
2: Yeah, no, so I, I, I guess
1: that, that's my, my final thoughts in the book. It's, uh, it's interesting. You can tell it's written in six days, but yeah, it's fun to go through and think You know, semi-critically about this. Well, I mean, I'm drinking a cup of moonshine and coffee and I'm not that <laughs> critical. But to, to go through it like that, yeah, and I'd recommend, honestly, if you have friends, read it with them. I mean, I don't know about how many people actually have friends you can read, but if you do, chill this. I'm not getting paid to advertise or anything, but like, if you have to read, I mean, th- this isn't a bad choice.
0: I had similar thoughts and I basically said, all I had to say other than I'm going to pester F. Gardner to write that Commander Chronos follow up. I need more Chronos, and don't be afraid to write a sequel because I want to know where the fuck he got that gorilla from. You can follow me at
1: writing. Yeah, I've been Leroy. Read my books. They're on Amazon. L.A., Labashane. They're actually good. <laughs> I mean, this is not just my personal opinion. F. Gardner reviewed one of them and he said it was
2: good. So, you know. So, yeah. Cheers.